John chapter 17. As you're turning there, I'll add my welcome and thank you all for being here. It's good to have visitors with us. We have lots of visitors in this place, being in the area of the world that we are, and we're always glad to see you, and especially those who visit every year. It's always good to, to see familiar faces, rekindle friendships for at least a brief while. And we hope that you'll find a, a faithful group here that meets at Cortez, trying to uh, be pleasing to God in our worship to Him and our service to Him. And we honor you as our guests and thank you for being here. I want to speak this morning about the Lord's Prayer. Um, I gave this message, uh, it's been several weeks back on a Sunday evening, and I was encouraged to bring this on a Sunday morning um, so that more folks could hear it, and hopefully our visitors, if there would be any in attendance, which there are, would be able to hear it. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I, I wanted to bring this message uh, to a little larger audience and share with you some thoughts about the Lord's Prayer. Now, um, if, you, if you're there in chapter 17 of John, you might be questioning why, why am I calling this the Lord's Prayer? A lot of people in the world and uh, brethren and denomination alike often think about the prayer that Jesus um, shows his disciples um, as being called the Lord's Prayer. Well, we might more um, uh, accurately describe that as the model prayer. Jesus is, when his disciples come and ask him, how might we pray? Remember how Jesus says, pray in this way. And that's when he offers um, what we a lot of times call the Lord's Prayer, but more accurately, that should be called the model prayer because he's teaching his disciples how to pray. In John chapter 17, we see the Lord praying. It's not the only occasion, but certainly uh, an occasion that's um, profound. And the prayer that he offers, some headings have it, uh, in my Bible, is called the High Priestly Prayer. And those are words that are put in there by men, of course, but I think that's a pretty accurate way to describe it. The high priestly prayer. This is the Son of God who is very, very soon going to be put to death by the hands of men. And he offers a prayer here at, at the end of his life. And as we see, he's going to pray for three different um, people or groups of people. And there's so, some very um, uh, obviously thoughtful, some very encouraging um, and some wonderful language that Jesus offers. And so we're going to take just a few moments and, and go through this and look at it in that way. I would offer to you that this, what Jesus is offering here is a threefold prayer. And we say that because of what I just mentioned there. There's really three people or groups of people that Jesus prays for in this prayer. First, he's going to pray for himself in verses 1 through 5. He's actually going to pray for himself, his relationship with, with his Father, with God. Secondly, he's going to pray for his apostles, those that God has entrust, entrusted him with, these 12 men that God has entrusted him with. And he has a special prayer for them and, and the work that they're about to engage in and the, the very fact that he's about to leave them and leave them with this work that they have to do on earth. Of course, sending the, the Holy Spirit to help them, as he promised. And then the last part of the prayer, verses 20 through 26, Jesus is going to pray for believers. Those who would listen to what the apostles said 
and the, uh, those who are teaching and preaching the gospel and those who, who are down through generation and generation all the way down to us. Jesus is going to pray for us, those who believe in him. So let's look at this from that standpoint and begin with reading. Let's read verses 1 through 5 and understand about Jesus uh, praying for himself. Brad read there for us a moment ago. Let's recap and read again. Verse 1 of chapter 17 of John. These things Jesus spoke. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may have eternal life. And this, eternal, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now, glorify thou me, together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus asked for, or before he asked for the glory, let's make a note here, how he mentions that his hour has come. What does that mean, that his hour has come? Well, just flip back just real briefly and look at a, how Jesus talks about his hour. If you see there in chapter 2 and verse 4, with the first miracle that is recorded here in John, with the, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast, you see there in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, Woman, what hast thou to do with, with, with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is recognizing that there's a time coming where his hour is going to be. And that time is when Jesus is going to be put to death, when he will fulfill his mission. And that is to come to earth and to, to die at the hands of men so that man might be redeemed from their sins. If you look there in chapter 12 and verse 23, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So from, from the chapter 12 onward is really the last week of our Lord's life. So he is recognizing that the time is drawing near that he will be glorified. He will accomplish what God had given him to do. And if you look there in chapter 13, beginning of verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So there's a recognition that Jesus' hour had come, and indeed that last supper that the, they, he will enjoy there with, with his apostles, and the time there is drawing very near. Well, he will be arrested, he will be tried, and he will be, he will be put to death. So Jesus recognizes that in this prayer. Lord, my hour has come. Now is the time. And he asked God to glorify him as his son. And he asked that so that he can glorify God. So the, see the glory that's going back and forth. It was God's glory in his son to send him to do what he has done. That glorifies God. And then for, for Jesus to do what God had asked him to do, that glorifies God the Father. So the glory that is going back and forth there. And what is the glory that that Jesus ultimately asked for in this. And he says there in verse 5, the glory that they once shared. Well, this might be a reference all the way back to the, the creation, back to the very beginning. Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you come down to verse 26 of Genesis 1, where, where God says, let us make man in our image. And the idea there being that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
were present at the beginning, at the creation. And that might be the glory that Jesus is talking about. From the glory since beginning of time, since beginning of anything that we as humans know, that's the glory that Jesus is asking to be restored. So how did Jesus glorify God? Well, first he left heaven. As we read in Philippians 2 and verse 5, how he emptied himself and left heaven and came to, to earth to fulfill that mission that God had given to him. That's how he began his journey to glorify God. And if we read there in verse 4, he accomplished all the work that God had assigned to him. You see there in verse 4, he says, I glorify thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. The last thing that Jesus will have to do is to face that death, the death on the cross at the hands of men. But he has accomplished all the work that God had assigned him to do, and therefore bringing glory to God. And it's summed up there in verse 3, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. It was Jesus's, I will read here in just a moment, it was Jesus's purpose to fully describe and to, to show and to reveal God the Father. And he did that through his own actions. And so that's all summed up in verse 3. I came that they might know God, and in knowing God they might know me, that I came from you, the Father. Eternal life is in God and his Son. That's what he says there in verse 3. The, the ultimate will of God expressed in eternal life through the giving of his Son. Beginning in verse 6, Jesus is going to pray for his apostles. Let's read for the moment just verses 6 through 8. It says, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. And from the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. And they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. So beginning here, these first few verses, notice about the Father with the, with the, in terms of the apostles. He gave them to the Son, the apostles. Jesus is saying, these men you have given to me. And the Son, he has manifested God's name to them, which means he has revealed God to them. In what he has done. John, in the beginning of his, uh, of his uh, gospel, talks about no one has ever seen the Father at any time, but the Son of God, he explains him. Jesus had revealed God to them through his own actions, through who he was, through his ministry. He's manifested God's name to them, and he has given them the words that God the Father has given uh, him to give to them. He has passed those words along. And so this is the beginning of his prayer for his apostles. Now let's continue our reading, picking up now in verse 9. It says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, 
I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 13. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, uh, they have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And thou didst send me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. So what does Jesus ask of his apostles? First, he recognizes that they came out of the world. As we see the calling of, of, of those men, the fishermen and the tax gatherer and the others that have come out of the world, they came out of the world to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of his and to be an apostle of his. He received and kept the words the Son gave them from the Father. So the things that Jesus taught them, he, they, they took in. They received that. This is the words that are coming from the Father. And they know that the Son comes from the Father who sent him. Jesus, over and over and over again, glorifies God in his ministry. He tells them that this, is, this has come from the Father. I do what the Father tells me to do. I come in his name. I do what he asks me to do. In so doing, he reveals the Father to them. And they know all things he gave them came from the Father. So he also tells them over and over again that these things that I'm telling you come from the Father. Not of my own words, but from my Father. So it's very important in the, the passing down, if you will, from the Father to the Son to the Apostles to believers. And we'll complete that, that transition, that passing down here in just a moment as we go forward. But keep that in mind. And his prayer for them, as we just read there from verses 9 through 19, he's not praying for those in the world. He makes that very clear that, that the prayer he's off, that he's asking here and the petitions that he's petitioning his God are not for everyone in the world, but for these men, for these 12 men, except one. We'll talk about that in just a moment. He's praying for his apostles. So in verses uh, 6 through 19 of this, that's the prayer for his apostles, for these 12 men that are going out into the world and going to spread and going to teach and preach the gospel. They had a special charge. They had a special mission. That's why he prays for them in such a way. And he prays for them because they belong to God and Jesus, as we established. God gave them to Jesus and Jesus kept them. And now he is turning them loose into the world. So there is the passing on that's, that's taking place. They glorify Jesus. They glorify Jesus in what they are doing, what they're going to go forth in doing. But they are still in the world. Jesus says, I am not in the world. Now, of course, he's speaking uh, in the very near future. But for all intents and purposes, he's out of the world. He has accomplished the will of God, which is what he said he did there in verse 4. And all he faces is arrest, trial, and, and crucifixion. Those things that are somewhat out of his control. The idea that he's at the hands of men, the rest of this is going to take place. But he's going to allow it to take place to fulfill God's will as well. 
But they are still in the world, and Jesus is not. He kept them while he had them. He kept them, except one, the son of perdition that he mentions there. That, of course, is Judas, the one that will betray him. He hasn't betrayed him yet as the, at this point when, when, when Jesus is offering this prayer. Again, he's speaking in the immediate near future. But he knows Jesus, Judas is going to betray him. But all the rest of them he has kept except for Judas, and that is to, uh, to his charge. And he says that his joy is to be fulfilled in them. In 3 John in verse 4, John picks up on this idea and he says, I have no greater joy than, to, than this, to hear my children walking in truth. That's John later writing in his, his epistle there in 3 John. He passes down that, the idea that he loves to hear of his people walking in truth. Why? Jesus loved to hear that too. Jesus loved to hear of his apostles that were, that were keeping the faith, that were keeping the charge that they had been given. And there is that passing down of the knowledge and passing down of the mission that had been given to each one. And his joy is to be fulfilled in them. What Jesus had come to earth to do, these men were going to go out and tell the world about it. And that would make his joy complete, the going forth of the gospel. The world has hated them because of the words Jesus has given them. That's interesting to say in the middle of all this, isn't it? The world's going to hate them. Why? Because the words that they're going to say are going to convict them of their sin. Does the world hate truth-tellers today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So those who are on the side of the truth, if you haven't come to grips with the fact that the world's going to hate you, I would encourage you to come to grips with that as soon as you can. Because the world hates truth-tellers. Jesus is pointing that out about his apostles. And he asks God to keep them in the world because that's where their mission is going to be. They had to stay in the world for the gospel to go out, but he asked them to keep them away from the devil, to keep them away from harm as long as it's possible, so that they might fulfill their mission and to keep them in the faith. They, like him, are not of the world. Certainly they were in the world, but they're not of the world. So God, uh, Jesus asks God to protect them and to keep that in mind. He asked them to, to, to sanctify them in truth, to set them apart in truth. We mentioned in our Bible class this morning about those Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, as the, the gospel was coming through and being taught, they searched the scriptures to make sure that what was being taught was the truth. And so Jesus asks God the Father to, to make sure that the truth is being set apart. That they are set apart by God's will. This is what God has intended for them to do. I pray, Father, that this is indeed what they will do. As set apart by your word. They have been sent into the world like he was. We read there from, or at least summarized there from Philippians 2 about Jesus leaving heaven and going into the world, taking on the form of a bondservant. Now his apostles are to go into the world and to preach and teach the gospel. And so they have been sent into the world like he was to fulfill God's ultimate plan of telling the whole world about the gospel, about his son. And Jesus said, I sanctify myself so they can also be sanctified in their word. Jesus was set apart left heaven and came to earth to do his work, now he is setting them apart so that they may go into the world 
and do what they need to do, the mission that they have been charged. The last part of the Lord's Prayer, verses 20 through 26. Jesus here is praying for believers. Let's pick up our reading, verse 20. It says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be as one, even as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and thou and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me, and thou didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom, they has, uh, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me. And I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. What's the first thing that, that might jump out to you about Jesus' prayers for the believers? Well, I think you'll realize that the basis of his prayer and what the little thread that goes throughout these last verses is the idea of unity. Jesus wanted his believers to be one with him as he was one with the Father. He wanted, uh, just as he and the Father are one, he wanted the, the unity to, uh, to transcend into those who would come to know the truth so that all could be united. And this unity will prove that the Father has sent the Son. How, how is that so? Think about the unity that Jesus is asking for. Think about the idea that if we're all united under one faith, that we're all united in one mission and one goal, and that we serve one God, and we do that through one church, the church that is spoken about in the scriptures. Think about the unity that that shows. Think about what that tells the world, that we're united. The apostles went out and, and preached and taught Jesus Christ crucified. Remember Paul says that more than one occasion. We preach Christ crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think of the unifying message that that is. And think about if all the religious world were united in that message. Sadly, we're not. Sadly, men have come to their own devices and, and led people astray. We talked about false prophets in our Bible class this morning as Peter addresses them in 2 Peter 2. It's always going to be that way. It was already in the world when the apostles started their mission. You see the Judaizing teachers and, and would come along the Gnostics and then those who would deny all of that. And we see divisions in the Lord's body. We see divisions that ought not to be there because the Bible speaks of one church. 
And so what is Jesus' prayer here? He's praying for unity. He's praying that all those who are believers of Jesus Christ be united in him and in the Father. And they can share in the glory of them. Think about that. Think about as, as children of God, we get to share in the glory. We get to share in the glory the fact that God sent his son and that his son appointed men to teach and preach the gospel. And as a result of that, we are believers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the unity, the, the unity that we have and the glory that we bring to God in carrying out his plan. We're here today because God wants us to be his children. And so we come together on the first day of the week to worship him. And we live our lives in honor of him and to do his will and to serve him. And that brings glory to him because that is his plan. I hope I've made a, a good argument about this being the Lord's Prayer. About the idea that Jesus, as he's nearing the end of his life, offers a prayer, beautiful, stirring, comprehensive, if we will, prayer. He talks about the importance of, or, or, or it's important for us to start off to say that we recognize the divisions in the Lord's Prayer. Firstly, he talks about things for himself. He talks about how uh, he wants to be restored to his former glory. He wants to glorify God. He says, I have glorified you because I've kept all that you have told me to do. And then he's going to pray for this special group of men, his apostles, and their special things that he prays for for them. And the idea that God to keep them while they complete their mission in this world. And then he seeks things for believers. Those who believe in his word and have come to know Jesus Christ and have come to put on Christ through the waters of baptism. And his prayer is that they be unified. Unity is something that's very important. It's important for us to be unified so that we can share in the glory of the Father and the Son. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 1 about the divisions that were, that were there in Corinth. I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos. And he chastised them for that. He admonishes them. Why are there divisions among you? Has Paul been crucified for you? Has Christ been divided? The plea for unity is throughout Scripture. And it must tell us that it is in, God, uh, in, in man's ability and man's nature to not be unified. To go off on our own directions. To seek after our own self-interest. Rather than seek, seeking after what God has put before us. Seeking after his will to be unified in the church. Christ has not been divided. Paul was not crucified for our sins. No man on this earth was crucified for our sins other than Jesus Christ. So the prayer there for believers that comes down to us is for unity. Thereby glorifying the Son and glorifying the Father. 
Isn't it comforting to think about that at the end of our at the end of his life, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for those who would come after the apostles, those who would believe in the gospel that they were preaching and teaching. Those who would recognize that in order to be saved, there are some things that I must do. I must believe in the gospel that I'm hearing. And I must repent. I must understand that I cannot go on living the life that I have been living. That I must turn and live a life to God. And I must recognize who has brought this message to me, and that is the Son of God. And I must recognize that He has all authority, because God has given it to Him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we, we hear those words from God, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And Jesus says it as He is commissioning His apostles, All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. And he tells them, gives them that charge there in the Great Commission to go out into all the world, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you. There's our unity. Our Lord wants us to be unified in our service to Him. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to take the necessary steps to become a child of God. To, believe, to hear the gospel, to believe in it, to, to realize that you need to repent and confess who Jesus Christ is. And then you are a candidate for baptism. Not as an infant, not as someone who doesn't believe and confess and repent, but as a, a penitent, confessing believer, you are a candidate for baptism. And then you go down to those waters and you wash away your sins. You come up out of that water a new creature. To walk in newness of life. To be a child of God. I would encourage you to make the necessary steps in your life to do that. If as a child of God, you're out of that unity. If you're not seeking to be unified with your brethren. If you've fallen away from that ideal that God has put before us. I would encourage you to, to get back on track. To love the brethren. Let the love of the brethren continue. If there's anything we can do to help you. You can let your request be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.